over the last several years, um, my wife and I have enjoyed a number of interesting vacations. And there was one in particular that um, two years ago we decided to go to Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and Gettysburg. We wanted to make like a historical summer, so we took time and spent like two or three days at each of those locations. And one of the most moving situations that we encountered, it was just happened into it. We were at Faneuil Hall in Boston. Faneuil Hall it would be like Independence Hall area in Philadelphia. It's a little different in that it's more of a market uh, place than it is historical, although it is historical. And we went into the actual hall, and as we were going in, there was in progress a ceremony, and we had no idea what it was. It turned out to be a naturalization ceremony for individuals that were from other countries who wanted to become United States citizens. And that was very moving for us, and the moving uh, part of it that we were particularly struck with was the Oath of Allegiance. And I just want to read that. Again, this is someone coming from another country and who has decided that it's not simply enough that I get my visa or my green card or I work here, I raise my children here. I want to be part of this United States of America. And to become a citizen is rather difficult. You have to learn a number of different things. I believe there's a test. The test has some 70 or 80 questions um, on the test. Uh, such things as how many people are in Congress. Congress is made up of how many senators, how many representatives in the House, how many terms of office can a president seek, uh, what's the term of office for a representative, what's the term of office for um, a senator, how many states are there, along with how many states, how many territor territories are there a ter territory being something like either Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, Guam, and so forth? And the whole reason for that is because they don't simply want to make it easy. On the other hand, they want, they being the government, wants people who are actively engaged with what it is they're going to pledge themselves to. And let me read that. This is the naturalization oath of allegiance to the United States of America. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty, of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of these United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed services of the United States, when required by the law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help me God. Now, why on earth are we talking about that today? Because where we left off in Romans, again, as I've reminded 
all of you before, and I'll continue to remind you for as long as I have the opportunity to teach and preach, that the chapter divisions are not inspired. They are not in the original text. So while we're ending in chapter 5 and beginning with chapter 6, when Paul wrote these words to the church at Rome, there was no chapter 5, there was no chapter 6, there were no 16 chapters in the book of Romans. It was one continuous letter. And I say that because there is a continuation of thought going from the end of what we call 5 into chapter 6. And so I want to begin by reading, and I'm going to start at chapter 5 and verse 20 and read through chapter 6 down to verse 14. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. You remember the words of Jesus when he's speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees in John chapter 8. He said there that if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Verse 8 here. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you can obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. When we look at chapter 6, I use a number of different commentaries. And a commentary is written by an author who has studied, who has preached, and um, who has taken the time to try to sort out what the original language says. At this particular passage, we need to understand that not everybody is in agreement on what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Different commentators have different ideas. 
when Paul is talking about being dead to sin, he's not saying that we're hoping that we're dead to sin or we want to do better. He's talking rather of a positional situation and I want to go back for those of you who have been here the last couple of weeks and in that particular diagram that we have and those of you who need it, I'll see that you get it. Amy, you'll get it. Jeff, I'll get you a copy of it. There are two humanities. There is the entire human race from Adam through the last person that will be born on planet Earth. That's the one humanity. But there is a new humanity, and the new humanity is those individuals out of the first group that have come to faith in what God has said. And that includes all, even though many of them are individuals that never knew of Jesus. So how can that be? I'm talking about the Old Testament saints. Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, the prophets, King David, and so forth. They didn't know Jesus per se, but they trusted in the promises of God. Those individuals are as much a part of the new humanity as my wife, or Margaret, or Carolyn, and so forth that have put their trust in Jesus in time now. But here's the thing. When a person believes in Christ, everybody stay with me on this, they have moved from old humanity to new humanity. They are not both. Spiritually speaking, they have moved from old humanity. Old humanity by virtue of birth. A physical birth. But that physical birth results in them being born into this world as sinners who are sinners by birth and subsequently will become sinners by practice. The new humanity, a person becomes part of the new humanity also by birth, but a different kind of birth. The birth by which they are born again by the Holy Spirit taking the Word of God and using the Word of God to create spiritual life in that individual. But when that occurs, God has moved them from citizenship in this kingdom into citizenship in this kingdom. Now, with the exception, and I didn't research it, but can a person be a citizen of two countries? Yes, they can. You know, there are people that have dual citizenship. Thank you, Pastor. A person can have dual citizenship. But if you're going to be a person with dual citizenship in the United States, you still have to pledge yourself to everything in that oath of allegiance. Which means this. If a person has dual citizenship with the United States, they're a citizen of the United States now, a new citizen of the United States, but they have their old citizenship, if the other country would ever make them do something that would violate the citizenship of the United States, my understanding is they would have to renounce that 
in favor of what they've pledged by way of allegiance to the United States. Everybody got that? Okay. Now, here's how it applies to you and me. When it talks about being dead to sin and alive to Christ, we need to understand that, remember I used an illustration weeks ago, and I pointed over to the far corner over there, and I said, use your imagination. See way out there, there's three crosses, they're on a hill, and the center cross, something's happening. We wouldn't have seen anything magical happening that day. If we would have been standing there looking at those three individuals on the hill, it looked like three individuals that were just beaten silly within an inch of their life, crucified. There wasn't any glow, there wasn't any halo on Jesus' head. You know, there wasn't any, any rays of sunlight beaming down on Jesus. There was none of that. There was nothing out of the ordinary. As a matter of fact, you would have just thought it was another day in Rome because people were crucified on a regular basis if you were a criminal in Rome. A common form of people being put to death. The two most common forms of capital punishment were you either were crucified or you were beheaded. So it was a, just a common occurrence, and you would have been looking out over there, and there's you know three individuals. They're being crucified on Calvary's Hill. But you wouldn't have seen anything unusual happening, and the only way you see anything happening at all is with eyes of faith. And the eyes of faith are not that I feel all warm and fuzzy because of some experience at church. I mean, I got to tell you, the last three weeks during the time that I was in Romans chapter 5, we sang Chris Tomlin's song, He Is. For me, that particular new hymn is one of the best, I think, that's out there in maybe the last 25 years in terms of just the meatiness of what he's saying and the fact that it's just making me be reminded of what's taking place and what took place and it was presently taking place in the very throne room of Almighty God. I get up in the morning and I read the headlines. I get up before my wife, I'm usually on the internet. I'm going through different websites. I'm seeing what's happening around the world. And I got to tell you, what's happening around the world is the worst I've seen it in my lifetime. Ever. Ever. And some of you are old enough to know exactly what I'm talking about. We have governments and media that are just lying willy-nilly. We have peoples of the world just hating one another. We have diseases of the world. We know of COVID, but you know there are other things out there that are even deadlier than COVID. And on and on and on. We have places where there's hyperinflation already, and some have speculated there's going to be tremendous inflation. In the United States, what's that going to mean for you? It's going to mean that your dollars are not going to go as far as they used to, if that happens. I notice that every time I go to the gas pump now. I used to be able to put a tank of gas in my car, and it was 32 or $33. The other day, I put a, a tank of gas in my car, a full tank. It was $41. That's a big increase. Just in the last five months, that's a big increase. You go to the grocery store, you know, you pick up a roast. You know, a roast used to be $15, $20. Now they're $25, $30. How people are going to eat, I don't know. How people are going to pay their bills, I don't know. But that's one of many things happening in the world around us. And except for the fact that I'm trusting that Jesus is building his church and that church is made up of a new humanity. Yesterday we had an unusual experience. Ann and I were working on our, our front. We have a bank. Our house sits 
about 10, 12 feet above the sidewalk. So to get up there, you have to go up two sets of steps. All together, it's, I don't know, 11, 12, 13 steps. And the bank is about eight feet long, and we're putting rocks and junipers there, and, you know, because it's just miserable to try to mow otherwise. So we're out there, and we've already been out there two hours, and all of a sudden I see this group of people, mostly African-American, marching down the street, a few people that were Caucasian marching with them. Altogether, though, 40 or 50 people. And I thought, oh, what's this now? And I was not sure. And in light of everything that's been in the news, you know, my antenna goes up and I'm hoping whatever it is, it's happy and it's peaceful. And then I saw they were waving flags and I'm looking and they were just nice flags. There weren't any rainbow colored flags. They were just nice flags. Some were regular cloth, some were metallic. And then I noticed a couple of the people were carrying signs. And the sign said, Jesus is the answer. Jesus died for your sins. Well, now my wife and I, we're waving. We're smiling. They're all smiling back. One of the men comes over. He introduces himself. I introduce myself. Let them know that, you know, I'm chaplain here at Lamb Foundation and pastor of a little congregation called Shepherd's Chapel. While he calls me over to a couple of the other folks, he makes introductions. He says, Brother Bill here would like to bless us. He says, Brother Bill, introduce yourself to us. So I said, I'd be happy to. So I said, greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ from the brothers and sisters at Shepherd's Chapel and Lamb Foundation. I said, if I may, may I offer a prayer in your behalf? They said, oh, please. So I took the next five or ten minutes and I prayed for them. And I prayed for us. And we had, you know, afterwards, high fives and handshakes and bear hugs. And I'll be getting together with some of those folks in the future. But I was reminded as we were doing that, and I said to the one brother, I said, this is just a wonderful reminder that from every tongue and tribe and nation, God is calling his people to himself. And he said, Amen. And he gave me a big bear hug. And I thought to myself, what a wonderful experience. And then he was telling me, he said, oh, some of the things that we're doing. He said, we're involved with a, a church that has its roots from, um, um, I guess, Christians in Lebanon and another um, group from individuals that were, I, I can't recall if they were from Korea. Yeah, I guess a Korean congregation as well. And he said, what we're trying to do is, is make connections with other churches in the community, Bible-believing churches. You know, that he was careful to say, Bible-believing churches. And I thought, yeah, what a, a wonderful thing that is. You know, God is making for himself, folks, a new humanity. And one of the telltales about the new humanity, new humanity is this. He's called us to live a new life. And so he begins, chapter 6, by saying, shall we go on sinning in order for grace to increase? And then he says, how can that possibly be? God didn't call Margaret to become a Christian so that Margaret could be a rabble-rouser or a drunk, somebody who used drugs to be a thief, Mar Margaret didn't call 
other folks who are Christians to be lazy? You know, one of the things that, that breaks my heart sometimes, and I see it too often in Lamb, if you are a Christian at Lamb, be useful. Be useful in the house that you live in or the apartment that you live in. Be useful and helpful to staff, whether or not you're ever acknowledged by any of those people. Because if, in fact, you are useful, God is seeing it, and God will reward you. And that should be enough. It may not be enough. Sometimes it may be downright discouraging. Because you wonder, you know, is there anybody that's really noticing my efforts? God's noticing your efforts. And God's also noticing the lack of effort on the part of some who say, well, I'm a Christian. And for some, God would say, yes, you are. Get on with it. And for others, he might say, no, you're not. And you're just kidding yourself. Two humanities. You're not in both. You're in one or the other. And if you're in this one, Adam's group, old humanity, Jesus says these words, he who practices sin is the slave of sin. What's he mean by that? It means that's what you do. Everything you do is brought with sin. And unfortunately, too many people think in terms of, well, sin is just, you know, me breaking one of the Ten Commandments. No, it's not. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. So if that's the greatest commandment, the violation of that greatest commandment is also the greatest sin. He says also, I want you to love your neighbors as yourself. If that's the second greatest commandment, then the violation of that commandment is also the second greatest sin. Far more than coveting and murdering and bearing false witness and not honoring the Sabbath or honoring father and mother. Jesus says, start with number one and number two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're part of the new humanity, that matters to you. Does that mean you're going to keep faith perfectly? It does not. But what Paul is arguing here in Romans chapter 5 is we might say it this way. The reign of sin and the reign of grace. And what we mean by that is a person who is part of the, new, the old humanity can't do anything to please God. Let me say that again. Can't do anything to please God. On the other hand... If a person is born again, he doesn't have to do anything to please God, per se. He does need to repent of his sins. He does need to believe. But he doesn't have to do anything to try to gain God's attention. Why? Because God sees him or her in Christ the same way, or similarly, I should say, to the way he sees the unconverted, the unbeliever, in Adam. The person who is in Adam has rejected, either actively or passively, a right relationship with God. A person in Christ understands it's nothing that I can do to save myself. That individual understands the before and after picture. 
Some of you are too young for this illustration, but let me use it anyway and I'll explain it as we go. Growing up, I used to read a lot of comic books. Love comic books. Still love comic books. But along the way, comic books got too expensive and too fancy and you know, they kind of went off the, the rails in terms of storylines. <clears throat> but I'm talking about the original Marvel comic books, DC comic books, and so forth in the 60s and the 70s. And then I probably stopped reading them in the early, early 70s. By the time I was out of high school, I wasn't reading comic books anymore. But I'm still interested in, like, the characters and so forth. And in the DC comic books there was often a half-page advertisement by a fella by the name of Charles Atlas. Anybody remember Charles Atlas? And Charles Atlas, the advertisement was broken up into, into three sections. The two sections were the before picture, the after picture, and then underneath, you know, the... the uh, Something Dynamics, uh, whatever his pitch he was selling, was the pitch. And, you know, you could, you could be like the after picture. But the before picture is he's on the beach with his girlfriend. And along comes the bully, and the bully kicks sand in his face. So Charles Atlas decides he's not going to be bullied anymore. I know what it, it's... It was called Dynamic Tension. So he creates this thing called dynamic tension, which is using, using your own body weight and so forth, and, and very little in terms of weights and gym equipment, to, to build your body. So then the second picture is, you know, he's built himself up, and now he comes along, and, you know, his old girlfriend is with the bully, and he goes up to the bully, and he beats the bully up. Okay? But the thing that you wanted to remember... The thing that they were trying to picture for you was, here's the before. This is you without dynamic tension. But you can be just like Charles Atlas. Here's the after picture. You can be the, the big and brawny guy, you know, that can take care of yourself. The Bible teaches for the Christian there's a before and there's an after. And here's how we're told that. In Ephesians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, turn there. The books of the Bible go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Galatians, or excuse me, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Galatians, and then Ephesians. So find Ephesians chapter 2. And there the Apostle Paul is reminding the church at Ephesus, here's the before, here's the after. Beginning at verse 1 of chapter 2. As for you, and I'm going to insert some words along the way. As for you, Ephesians, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He's talking about Satan and how Satan works in those who have not put their trust in God. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. He's saying, we were just like them. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Wrath is an old English word. It simply means extreme anger. Whose anger? God's 
anger. But because of his great love for us, Christ, who is rich in mercy, or God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ <clears throat> even when we were dead in transgressions. Now, let's go back to two circles. Folks, look here. Two circles. Old humanity, new humanity. What's characteristic of old humanity? Dead in transgressions and sins. Spiritually dead. Can't please God. Can be a nice person. Can be somebody you'd like as a neighbor but can't do anything to please God. That's old humanity. Dead in transgressions and sins. Everything that this person does, regardless of how good it looks, if it's done without faith, it is not pleasing to God. So he's saying, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great mercy and great love for us, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. So here's what happens. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, again, watch. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I believe it's chapter 5, that he who believes in him has crossed over from death to life. Not will, has. In the same, it's not the same way, in similar fashion to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God says, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what will happen? You will what? Surely die. Now we look at that and we read that and we say, they didn't die. Yes, they did. They died spiritually. And when we talk about life and death, too much focus is on our earthly bodily experience. So much so that if we would describe a human being, we might say this. Well, that person, that person is made up of what? Body and soul. The reality is, what you are is, you are a soul that has a body. You have that body for a time. And at some point, your soul is going to be separated from that body. I'm going to use Joey's parents as an illustration. Joey had two parents that loved him. They've gone on to be with the Lord. But right now, with regard to his parents, the Bible would say this, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So while their bodies are buried somewhere, their souls, present tense, are with God and very much alive. Because at some point during their earthly experience, they passed from, over here, old humanity, and became part of new humanity. And in so doing, crossed over from death life. The day will come that the Lord will reunite their souls with their bodies. How's all that take place? We don't know. But the important thing is, is every single human being presently Spiritually speaking, is one of two things, either alive spiritually or dead spiritually. 
everyone, every one of us right here, everyone that will be listening to this on Spotify, anyone who chooses to watch the videos on YouTube, every single human being presently on planet Earth who have lived before this time and who will live after this time are either spiritually dead and remain spiritually dead or begin spiritually dead and at some point in their experience are born again and in so doing become part of new humanity. And Paul is making the argument in chapter 6, if you're part of new humanity, then you have to think and you have to act like new humanity, which means what? Don't be a sinner. Don't be sinning. Yield yourself to God. Practice righteousness. Do it by faith. Don't do it by how you feel. Too many people focus their attention on how they think about Christianity far more by how they feel. And it drives me as a pastor crazy when I'm talking to somebody and they're so distraught because they don't feel like God loves them. And it's like, what does that mean? Well, pastor, everything in my life is going bad, and if God loves me so much, why is everything going bad? Well, you live in a fallen world. You live in a fallen body. You live with fallen human beings. You know there are demonic forces, satanic influences in the world around us. Things are passing away. People get sick and die. All the above. All of those reasons that things are going to happen. Well, why doesn't God protect me from those things? God, did, God never said he would protect you from those things. In the day-to-day, -day, God will certainly protect you from those things. Ultimately. And that's why later on in the book of Romans, Paul is able to say... Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. Not even physical death can separate us from the love of God. But we may experience horrendous, horrible, unimaginably awful things in this life. Why? Because the world in which we live. And the people that co-inhabit it, this world. Not everyone living in the world today loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Many don't believe in the Trinity. We've already discussed that from time to time in the past. There are seven plus billion people on planet Earth. Most of them are not believers in the true and living God. Most of them are people that believe in something other than God. They make up God as a figment of their imagination. But that doesn't make their gods God. Any more than if somebody started describing me and they would start, you know, describing me in a way, well, he has red hair and he's six foot five and, you know, he wears a, a, a size 15 shoe and so forth and he's left handed and he doesn't wear glasses, and he's got perfect hearing, and so forth. And it's like, who are you talking about? You're not talking about Bill Rudolph. You're talking about somebody else. No, I'm talking about Bill Rudolph. No, you're not. You created a figment of your imagination. Well, plenty of individuals do that with God, don't they? They have no interest in worshiping the God of this book. But God has made all of us worshipers at some level. Many individuals worship their things. We call them materialists. Many individuals worship their children. 
many individuals worship their accomplishments, their achievements, their trophies, their lifestyle. Many individuals adapt other reference points in their worship. Many individuals that I know that call themselves either Muslims or Christians or Jews, if you ask them what's in the Koran, what's in the Bible, what's in the Old Testament, they'd be hard-pressed to tell you. They simply wouldn't be able to tell you. But they're aligned with a certain degree of religious experience in their personal history, and as a result, they want to let it be known to you that they're a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew. The reality is, any of their teachers in those respective religions would say, you're none of those. One of the things that I was struck with when I started reading in anticipation of what I'd be talking about today, one of the particular commentators that I've referred to from time to time is uh, a pastor who has since gone to be with the Lord. He started off in life career-wise as a doctor, became a pastor in his, I think, mid-30s. fellow by the name of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Lloyd-Jones was the pastor of Westminster Chapel. And he wrote this in the preference, pref, excuse me, preface of his commentary on Romans chapter 6. His commentary series on Romans is probably the lengthiest that's out there. It's, I think 13 volumes long. But he wrote this in his preface. On Sunday evening at the close of a service at Westminster Chapel somewhere about 1943, a certain well-known preacher came into my vestry and said to me, when are you going to preach a series of expository sermons on the epistle to the Romans? I answered immediately, when I have really understood chapter 6. Now I say that because this individual, Lloyd-Jones, is among my favorite authors when it comes to spiritual writings, along with some other individuals out of three or four individuals that I, I read regularly, he is one of three that have all gone to be with the Lord. He is time-tested. He is generally solid in his teachings. He spent the better part of six or seven months going through Romans chapter 6. Now, I say that to say this again. I have no idea how long it will take to go through this chapter. I don't particularly care how long I take to go through this chapter or the book of Romans. Again, my goal is I want you to get these things. I want you to understand these things. I want you, as best you're able to, to at least understand them so that you can think through them so you can interact with one another so you can get it one of the main things that he's going to be arguing about in this chapter Paul that is is he wants Christians to understand in Christ there is newness of life that when we talk about new life, we're not simply talking about positionally new in Christ. There really needs to be a new life. When I talk to Christian, when I talk to individuals from time to time about Christianity, particularly with unbelievers, they'll ask a question that goes something like this: Do I have to give up all my bad habits? Well, what are my bad habits? You know, or what are your bad habits? I'll ask. 
and you know they might say well i i like i i really like loud rock music uh okay not a problem i i like drinking well do you drink to enjoy you know a, a beer or or a wine cooler or do you drink to get drunk if you're drinking to get drunk yeah god says you know that's sinful can't do that is drinking a wine cooler out of bounds personally i don't think so well you know i'm gonna have my cigarettes have your cigarettes you know if you're just smoking endlessly like a chimney you're probably doing more harm to your body than you should be that's probably bordering on sinfulness and so forth but the point is that i would say to that person God is less inclined to be, you know, doing the checklist with you and more inclined of saying, I don't want you to do something that either I told you not to do it and you're going to do it. Or I told you to do something and you say, I'm not going to do it. That in a nutshell is what sin is. But it's not whether or not I drink a beer it's not whether or not I go to an R-rated movie. It's not whether or not I read a murder mystery and enjoy it. It's not those things. It is, is God saying no and I'm saying yes? Or is God saying yes and I'm saying no? And those things, yeah, they're out of bounds. But the person says, I don't care if they're out of bounds. That's the way I am. And God just needs to understand. If that person's, if the person responds to me that way, then I'm going to say to him, if you call yourself a Christian, don't, because I don't think you are. And if you want to be a Christian on your terms, I don't think you understand what Christianity is. Because Christianity, in a nutshell, is doing life on God's terms. Whatever terms he says. The Lord willing, we'll pick this up next week. Again, we'll take as long as it takes. If you have questions along the way, bring those questions. I would rather you understand these things than we just cover ground to cover ground so that we can say, by golly, we made it now and we're in chapter 10 or 12 or 14 and you know, we're, we're not doing this in a race, okay? There's no urgency in getting so much accomplished. The urgency is that we all come to faith in Christ. The urgency is that we all pass from the old life, which is death, to the new life in Christ, which is life itself. That's what eternal life is. Jesus said it this way. This is eternal life, that they may know you and the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. True knowledge of the living God is what eternal life is. Let's pray, and then we're going to pass the offering. And somebody took our basket, so we'll be using this for the time being. Father, we pause to give you thanks now for loving us and for the word of God, and for using that to teach us what we need to learn Lord, help us to grow in these things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.